Remain standing for our gospel lessons from Luke 17 and Luke 19. This, this is God's gospel, so give it your ear. Now, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is among you. Now from Luke 19. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, Your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that it may that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us today to know what it means to be in Christ and to live as Christians between the two comings of Christ. Help us to be faithful in living for your Son, the King, Jesus. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Today's sermon is going to be a little different from usual. We're We're going to talk about a biblical theological theme. 
and then we're going to come back and see how this theme in Scripture applies to us in the church, to believers living between the two advents of Christ. So I have an opening question for us to consider. Is the kingdom of God a future reality or a present reality? Is Christ's kingdom something to be hoped for in the future? Or is it something to be experienced now in the present? Does it belong to this age or the age to come? Today's the third Sunday in Advent. The season of Advent covers the four Sundays before Christmas. And the word Advent is just a fancy word that means arrival or coming. Advent is the time every year when the church reflects on the arrivals or the comings of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice that I said the comings, plural, of Jesus. During Advent, we look back to the first coming of Jesus when He became a man and tabernacled, dwelt among us as one of us and inaugurated His eternal kingdom. But we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus when the Lord will come back to the earth in all His glory and consummate His kingdom. And so that brings us back to our question that I maybe implicitly answered there. Is the kingdom of Christ present or future? Did Jesus establish His kingdom when He came the first time? Or will He establish it when He comes the second time? Are we experiencing right now life in the kingdom of God? Or is it just something that we'll experience then? The answer is that it's both. It's both. The kingdom of God came to earth when Christ came to earth the first time. But the kingdom didn't fully come then. There's still more to come. So those of us who live between the the two advents, the two comings of Jesus, in in a way we have one foot in this age and one foot in the age to come. We live in the overlap of the two ages. And in that sense, we can say that we live between two ages. The new creation in Christ is now... But it's also not yet. We are new creations in Christ now, but there's more to come. There's more newness to come. The kingdom of God has already come decisively and irreversibly in the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it hasn't fully come. It's not yet here all the way. Many of its blessings are here now. So we experience many of the blessings of the kingdom of God or the new creation in Christ. But many of them are not yet. Some of its power is available to believers now. But some of its power is yet to come. What that means for us is that some aspects of the curse and misery of the old age can be overcome now by the presence of Christ's kingdom on earth 
and among us and in us, corporately and individually. But some of them cannot be overcome and will not be overcome until the end. The decisive triumph over Satan and sin and ultimately sickness has been won. So the definitive battle against the devil, against depravity, against death, was accomplished in Christ's first coming. But the war isn't over. Sin still must be fought. The devil still must be resisted. Sickness and suffering still must be groaned under faithfully. And death must be endured until the second coming of Jesus, King Jesus, and the consummation of His eternal kingdom. So we need to make sure that we do justice to both sides of the equation here. You see, an unfathomable amount of kingdom power was unleashed on the world in the first coming of Christ. But there's still an unfathomable amount of kingdom power that is yet to come at the second coming of Christ. And here we are, here you are, living between these two advents. Not everybody in history has lived between these two advents. In fact, most of history so far has happened outside of those two advents. But here we are living between the two comings of Christ. And this has implications. This means we're in a different situation than those believers who lived before Christ. Every day, we experience the influences and the powers of two fundamentally different ages. Every day we find ourselves living in the tension of the already and the not yet. The now and the not yet. We are new creations in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But the patterns and the passions of the old Adam linger. And they rear their ugly heads, don't they? Our gospel lessons from Luke lay the groundwork for the already and not yet aspects of Christ's kingdom. In Luke 17, and you can open your Bibles to Luke 17, we're going to look at Luke 17 and then a little bit of Luke 19. We're not going to go verse by verse. But Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, is where Jesus makes the the presence, the now of the kingdom clear. Jesus wants his listeners to know that the kingdom has come. It's present, present tense. The first coming of Christ made, uh, the first coming of Christ, I should say, marked the beginning of the end time kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let me say that again. The first coming of Christ marked the beginning of the end time kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. Testament. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 17, 20 and 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. It's not a big event that you're going to see and say, oh, that's it. Nor will they say, see here or see there. 
For indeed, the kingdom of God is within or among you. What Jesus is doing here is correcting their misunderstanding of God's kingdom and how it works and how it would come. The Jews thought it would come with observable signs and wonders, glory, power. And their idea of observable signs was, in particular, the overturn of Rome and the vindication of Israel and Israel's Messiah who would lead Israel in military conquest and victories over the Gentiles. This is how the Messiah's eternal earthly kingdom would be established. It's how it would be inaugurated. So they thought. But Jesus comes along and says, essentially, no, it's coming in a way that will not be observed like that. The kingdom isn't coming by military might and power. In fact, the kingdom is already here because I'm here. Jesus made an equally clear statement about the presence, the now, the already of the kingdom a little earlier in Luke's gospel. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Luke 11, verse 20, where Jesus says, If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so we know that he was casting out demons by the finger of God, not by the devil, not by Beelzebub, as they accused him of, which means that the kingdom of God had come upon them. So when Jesus did battle with Satan and the powers of the kingdom of the devil, then in those times, the power of the kingdom of God was at work. The kingdom of God was already present, Jesus says. So, So we've established the presence, the now, the already, but in other places, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is a future reality. That's why I read the parable from Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells that parable to make it the point that the kingdom, in one sense, is not yet here. At least what they were expecting is not yet here. So as I said, we're not going to work through this verse by verse because we have other scriptures to look at. But just look again at the first two verses of that parable in Luke 19. Luke 19, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So in in the other passages, Luke 11 and 17, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom by telling them that it's already here. But here in Luke 19, he corrects a similar understanding by telling them that the kingdom is yet to come. The thing you're looking for, the the events that you're anticipating, the, the things that you're hoping will happen soon here in Jerusalem, those things won't happen until I leave and go far away, receive my kingdom, and at some point return. So there's this delay. They figured that Jesus was about to make his move. He was about to make his move on the power center of Israel and set up his earthly kingdom right there in Jerusalem. It would be accompanied, of course, by signs and wonders, and it would result in the final destruction of God's enemies and 
the ultimate vindication of God's friends, God's people. But in response to these expectations, Jesus, as he often does, tells a parable. And this parable makes it clear that the consummation of the kingdom that they're expecting, that they're wanting, that they're thinking is just right around the corner, he's almost to Jerusalem, that consummation is not coming just yet. It's going to happen someday, but not until Christ leaves and comes back after receiving his kingdom. That's why he says a certain nobleman, that's Jesus in this parable, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So make no mistake about it. The kingdom has already come, and the coming of the kingdom is still in the future. We live in the already and the not yet of Christ's kingdom. Okay, now this, this might be confusing, this, this tension might be confusing to us, but it was certainly puzzling to the first century Jews. They didn't have what we have. We, now we're used to it. We think about it. Okay, he came the first time. He's going to come again. But they didn't know what to do with this teaching that the kingdom would come in two stages. Back in Luke 7, it, it even threw John the Baptist for a loop. He, he was caught off guard by what was going on and particularly by what was not going on in the ministry of Jesus. He was so confused that he sent messengers to ask Jesus if he really was the Messiah. Remember that question? Are you the one who is coming? Or should we look for another? This is the the one who leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Jesus, when Mary came to Elizabeth's house. He'd been told stories about who Jesus was, surely from childhood. He's the one who proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, and yet he's confused by what's going on. Now, John the Baptist, we could say in one sense, he knew better than to ask this question, but he, but he couldn't help but be disappointed by the lack of observable power in the Messiahship of Jesus. John John was thinking, if if this really is the Messiah, if he's the one to come, the one we've been waiting on, then why am I in prison? Why is his right-hand man in prison? Probably going to die. You see, John knew his Old Testament. And the Old Testament taught that when the Messiah comes, all God's enemies would be destroyed. And all God's friends would be released from prison. As well as a whole lot of other things. Everyone everyone still alive would be worshiping God. So what's the deal? This is pretty anticlimactic for somebody like John the Baptist. And sometimes the Christian life can be kind of anticlimactic. We can think that certain things were going to happen. God was going to do this or that or the other, and then it doesn't. And we find ourselves questioning God. Are are you who you say you are? And that's where John the Baptist finds himself here. John the Baptist, you see, has run up against 
what Jesus calls in Matthew 13, the mystery of the kingdom, or the mysteries of the kingdom. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13. And we're going to we're going to look at a, a few parables here, here in a minute. Matthew 13 is, is a long chapter that's just full, mostly, of parables. And the main point of all these parables is to illustrate a main point that the mystery, that, that there is a mysterious aspect to the kingdom of God. It's to illustrate what Jesus calls the mysteries of the kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom. So before we look at some of these parables, I want you to read with me verses 10 and 11. In Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So what are these kingdom mysteries that Jesus is talking about? The mysteriousness of the kingdom was that it had come in part, but not in full. This was huge. Again, we miss it because we're so used to it, but this was huge. That's what the parables go on to illustrate in Matthew 13. The mystery is that the kingdom didn't come all at once. In all its glory, which is what everyone was expecting. The mystery is that the kingdom would come, it turns out, in two phases. So it was no secret or mystery that God would bring in His kingdom. They were expecting that. The timing was right. All Jews looked forward to it. The Old Testament predicted it. Passages like the one that we read, that Bobby read from Isaiah 11, and several others in Isaiah and other places. But Jesus is introducing a new, mysterious, secret truth that the Old Testament never mentions. At least not explicitly. You might be able to find it hinted at here and there. The new truth is that the kingdom is coming in two stages. So here's, here's, for example, what, how one scholar summarizes it. The new truth, now given to men by revelation in the person and mission of Jesus, is that the kingdom, which is to come finally in apocalyptic power, has in fact entered into the world in advance, in a hidden form, to work secretly within and among men. End quote. So You see, the Old Testament didn't separate the two comings of the Messiah the way the New Testament does. There's no contradiction. It just didn't give us all of the facts, all of the details until we get to the New Testament. So by and large, the Old Testament sees one great day of the Lord. Did you hear that in Isaiah 11 that we read? The, that On that day, Isaiah says... There's one great day of the Lord coming when God would deal decisively and permanently with sin and death. He would defeat His enemies and gather His people into a kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy. He would make a new heaven and a new earth, a glorious new earth. And the Messiah would rule 
on the throne of David over all the Gentiles, all the nations, forever. And all of this would happen suddenly, as soon as the Messiah came onto the scene, or at least that's what they thought. That's how they interpreted it. That's how it seemed to read. What the Old Testament pictures as a single end times event turns out to have two parts. So we could say it's still one huge event with two movements. The first movement is the coming of Jesus to suffer and atone for sins. And the second coming is the coming of Jesus in power and glory and final judgment. And so the mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God has been fulfilled but not consummated. The mystery that John the Baptist didn't understand was this new idea of fulfillment without consummation. You see, Jesus, in his first coming, fulfilled the Old Testament promises and prophecies and expectations and visions, but he didn't consummate them. It's not consummated yet. The consummation is yet to come. Many kingdom blessings can be experienced today in Christ, but many are reserved for the age to come after the second coming. The two-stage coming of the Messiah and His kingdom means that the Old Testament vision of the earth being completely covered with the knowledge of the Lord is not going to happen all at once. The Jews thought it would, but it's, it's not. Again, we read from Isaiah eleven nine: 9, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk 2, 14 says something similar. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the Jews figured that these prophecies would be f- fulfilled and consummated in their entirety all at once right when the Messiah came onto the scene. But the parables in Matthew 13 teach us that the process of filling the earth with the knowledge and the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, only began at the first coming of Christ. The first parable Jesus tells is about a sower who sows seed. And the seed is the word of God. It's the preaching of the gospel. And what we find is that not everyone in Christ's kingdom, responds with true faith all at once. And down in verse 24, Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. Tares are weeds. And in this parable, Jesus says that the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then, while he was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares in the same field. And this is a picture of the kingdom, Jesus says. It's the, king, it's the picture of the kingdom between the two advents. And he interprets it for us down in verses 37 to 43. The point is that the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one, as Jesus calls them, will live side by side until the harvest. The harvest is the day of judgment at the end of the age, the second coming of Christ. And in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, that sin, and those who practice lawlessness, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Of course, this is old hat to us, but it was new to Jesus' listeners. They never imagined that righteousness and evil would exist side by side in the Messiah's inaugurated kingdom. That's not what they expected, and they, and they had a hard time believing it. In fact, it says that they, many of them did not have eyes to see or ears to hear this kingdom mystery. They thought the kingdom would come with consummate power and destroy all evil and vindicate all righteousness. But Jesus says that it has arrived and that hasn't happened because evil and righteousness coexist and they will for a while according to these parables. So the full and final separation of righteousness and evil awaits the Messiah's second coming. The parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 33 makes the same point. Let's read it together. Matthew 13, 31 and 32. Another parable he put before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So Jesus is pushing the envelope here. He's, he's calling the coming of God's kingdom a small thing. He he compares it to a mustard seed, which is the least of all the seeds. How could Israel's Messiah have the audacity to call the kingdom a small thing? The mystery of the kingdom is that it came into the world without an obvious, observable, cataclysmic transformation of everything. It came like a mustard seed rather than a military coup. And someday it will be a huge, mighty tree. Let's look at one more before we move on to some specific application. Skip down to the last parable of Matthew 13, the parable of the fishing net or the parable of the drag net. It starts in verse 47. Let's read verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a drag net that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked among, from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The mystery of Christ's kingdom is that its net draws both true believers and false believers into its sway. It draws good and bad, Jesus says. And only when the net is up on the shore, at the close of the age, will the good and the bad fish finally and permanently be separated. And note carefully that the separation at the end of the age is not between the fish that got swept up into the net and those that didn't. No, the separation is between two kinds of people who are both swept up into the net of the kingdom. One kind is kept, the other kind is cast into the furnace of fire. The kind that will be thrown into the fire are those who loved the power of the kingdom, but not its purity. They loved signs, but not sanctification. They loved wonders, but not the will of God. As Paul 
says in 2 Timothy 3.5, having a form of godliness, but denying what? It's power. So don't be one of those fish. Don't let your godliness be a mere formality. Merely external. Don't come to church, but deny the power of the gospel during the rest of your life. Okay, so what do we do with this new biblical teaching on the kingdom that Jesus introduces in the gospel? What difference does it make for us to know that the kingdom has two stages? How does it help us to know that the kingdom is present and future? Why is it important to know that the anticipated kingdom, the glorious messianic kingdom that the Old Testament spoke of and looked forward to, has been fulfilled in Christ but not yet consummated? Well, here's why it's important. And here's where this whole sermon has been headed. The already and not yet nature of the kingdom of God is reflected and manifested in your Christian life. This is not just a cosmic truth or a historical truth or a biblical theological truth. The story of Christ's kingdom between the two advents is also the story of your Christian life between the two advents. Between the two comings of Christ, righteousness and evil will coexist in the kingdom and they will coexist in you. Do you see the parallels? Your Christian life is a microcosm of the kingdom of God. You... You are a new creation. The new creation has been inaugurated in you, but it hasn't been consummated in you. Your Christian life encapsulates in miniature the already and not yet features of the kingdom of God. As a believer, you're a reflection of the biblical, theological, historical truths that we're talking about. You've already been made new in Christ, but you're not what you will be in the future. You've already been freed from sin and death, but you will sin again and you will die before God frees you fully and finally from the power and presence of sin and death. You've been made new in Christ, but you still must strive to become new every day through the power of Christ's Spirit. You and I live between the two advents, between the two ages. And so every day, all day, we experience individually in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We experience it spiritually. We certainly experience it Physically, don't we, adults? This explains why the sins of your old self, the sins of your old Adam still haunt you. You have victory over sin because you're already a new creation in Christ now, but you continue to struggle 
with sin because you have not yet received the fullness of the victory that Christ accomplished for you on the cross. So in closing, let's look to Paul to see how we should think about the already not yet nature of the Christian life. I'm going to move through these passages fairly quickly. So if, if you don't want to turn, that's fine. You can just listen. Maybe write them down uh, instead of trying to turn to each verse. It's up to you. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's already done. You've already been delivered out of darkness. And you've been transformed and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And then two chapters later in Colossians 3 verse 3, Paul makes another statement about what's already true of you. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So your old self has died and you're dead to sin. This is now. This is already the case. These two passages are what's already true, definitively, objectively true about you in Jesus. But two verses later, in Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul suggests that something is still incomplete. He says, therefore, since you're dead, put to death... Your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So you see how it works? You see how the logic works here? There's this tension, same kind of tension that we saw in the kingdom of God, the already and the not yet. There's this already not yet tension in the Christian life. First, Paul says that you've died. It's already happened. You're dead. But then he follows it with the command to put sin to death. You're dead to sin now, but you still need to kill the sin that's not yet dead. That's the Christian life in some. That's the Christian life in some. Paul does this same sort of thing in our epistle lesson from Romans 6. Romans 6, 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. Okay, So the old man, there's the old Adam. The, 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 the sinful man, was crucified with Christ. It's over. You've died. But then comes Romans 6.11, just a handful of verses later. So you must also consider yourselves, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's true, and you need to consider it to be true. Believe it. Live it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He does it all in one verse here. Therefore purge out of the old, I'm sorry, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. So in essence, Paul's saying, get rid of the old leaven because, after all, you don't have any old leaven. You are unleavened, so be unleavened. Be what you already are. In Colossians 3, 
9 and 10, Paul says, you have put off the old self, the old Adam, with his deeds, and you have put on the new self. And this is already true of you in Christ. But listen to what Paul commands Christians in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. Okay, so remember in Colossians 3, it was you, um, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In both places, he's talking to Christians, to those who are in Christ, to believers. And in one instance, he says, you have died. You have put off the old self. You have put on the new. In another instance, he's exhorting them, commanding them, put on the new. Put off the old. Do it every day. We could read more passages in this regard, but we'll stop here. This is what it means to live between the two advents or the two ages. You already are new in Christ but you are not yet perfected. You already are dead to sin, but you must put sin to death. You already have been raised with Christ and you've been seated with Him in heaven, but you must seek the things that are above. You are a new person, but you must put on the new person and put off the old. You are unleavened, but you must cleanse out, purge out the old leaven. Sin no longer has dominion over your life. That's another passage from Romans 6. Sin no longer is reigning. It's no longer the king. No longer has dominion in your life. And yet, you must not let sin have dominion in your life. The key to a victorious Christian life is to pursue obedience on the basis of what's already true about you in Christ. Let me say that again. A key to a victorious Christian life is to pursue obedience on the basis of what's already true of you in Christ because of the gospel. You've been made new in Christ, so be what you are. In Christ, you are free from anger and selfishness and covetousness and resentment and pride and lying and lust and impatience and faithlessness. In Christ, you've been delivered from darkness and worldliness and lewdness and laziness and all the deeds of the flesh. You are holy. You have been set apart by the God of the universe. God has put his name on you. He's invited you to his table. He's sanctified you in the blood of the covenant, which is the blood of Christ. So be who you are. Live out the identity that God has freely given you in his grace. We're near the end. I'm going to leave you with two exhortations that sum up that sum up this sermon. I think these these two exhortations summarize everything that I wanted 
to get across this morning as we consider this theme in Scripture. I'm going to say them twice. Here they are. I'm going to to say them and then I'm going to repeat them. Become today what God has already made you. Become today who you will be in the world to come. So I'll say it again. Become today who God has already made you. And become today who you will be in the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your exhortations from Scripture today to live faithfully in Jesus, to put off the old, to put on the new, to get rid of the leaven. We want to do this, but we need your help to do it. We need your help to to kill the lingering sin in us. Please do it. Please do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.